the biggest message is we're all unique. We all have, you know, all sorts of um, different life experiences. And I also do believe um, that there is a transgenerational epigenetic programming. So, yeah. you know, I think that's been kind of clinically proven and Mayo Clinic, um, you know, has really highlighted some of the research studies around the three generation, three to seven generation hypothesis that, you know, this goes back, you know, before us. It, it's beyond us. And um, that just because, you know, you're going to your doctor and they're just saying, hey, your blood work looks normal and you don't feel right and, you know, you're not getting the right answers, there is hope. Welcome back to the Capital Integrative Health Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andrew Wong, and I'm excited to bring you a conversation today with Dr. Anil Bajnath diving into the topics of omics and personalized medicine. Dr. Bajnath is a board-certified family physician and author of The Longevity Equation, the step-by-step -step blueprint to hack your genes, optimize your health, and master the art of existence. In today's conversation, we'll be exploring what omics are and how Dr. Bajnath uses precision medicine to create personalized treatment plans for his patients. We'll also talk about how he integrates this approach into his medical practice and what you can do to bring this level of care into your wellness plan. So if you're curious about precision medicine and genomics and how this can improve your health, you definitely don't wanna miss this episode. Let's jump right in. Hey, Neil, welcome to the CIH podcast. We're so glad that you're here. Hey, Andy, it's always a pleasure getting to hang out with you. I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Thank you so yes. much for having me. Thank you for coming on. And and definitely, um, this will be a lot of fun. You know, I know we have talked over the years as colleagues and as friends, and really, uh, we know that it is all about having fun. And we're talking about discussing health and wellness, because fun makes, you know, kind of makes the mirror go round of life, you know, a little bit more enjoyable. It really does. You know, you got to enjoy what you do. And, you know, our conversations over the years for me have always been, you know, uh, encouraging and inspiring on multiple levels, both clinically, spiritually, professionally. And I thank you for for those conversations. Same here. Same here. And I think let's segue into into enjoyment and fun with with our first question, which is a very broad question. But I think this is also very fascinating because I think a lot of times people are wondering or listeners are wondering, you know, how did, how does Anil, you know, what makes Anil tick? What, how did, how did you get into the functional medicine space? And I think this is very inspiring for people as well. So kind of just, if you would tell us about what drew you to get into functional medicine, become a practitioner and what you enjoy most about what you do when you're kind of having fun on a daily basis. <laughs> well, thank you for that question. You know, actually it's a labor of love. You know, I got into the health sciences and the, the healing arts, you know, as a teenager. Um, I started off uh, working at a Whole Foods market back when it was owned by John Mackey and the hippies, you know, pre-Amazon days and, and worked in the vitamin <laughs> yeah. area. And nice. that was my first experience exposure to some of the nutraceuticals. And at that time, we actually had tons of different doctors from around the world that would come in and tour uh, Whole Foods markets around the US and provide educational seminars and series 
almost along the lines of what, how pharmaceutical reps would, you know, host these events and train you on the products and in the methods and mechanisms of action and so forth. So that was kind of my first, um, you know, exposure to the world of integrative medicine at, you know, the age of 16. And, um, uh, it, it basically carried forward and did a senior project in high school around, you know, natural medicine and all the different vitamins, minerals, homeopathics and herbs. And um, and then from there, actually, my uh, one of my high school wrestling coaches got me introduced to a technique um, using the microscope you see behind me there, um, dark field face contrast microscopy, and um, flew out and got certified uh, in Chicago with this technique at the age of 19 bought the microscope, started analyzing everyone's blood. I thought I wanted to be a hematopathologist until I did a, you know, kind of a rotation at MD Anderson Cancer Center in uh, Orlando, Florida, where I was um, majoring in molecular microbiology and medical laboratory science. And, you know, after working there, I realized um, I, uh, I enjoy speaking to people and not just being a lab rat, you know, so to speak. And, um, so I've always been into, you know, the kind of the healing arts and the, the molecular sciences. And during undergrad, um, I essentially uh, sought out different trainings with, um, you know, uh, different mentors and doctors. I, I completed uh, a two-year seminar series with um, the European uh, Biological Medicine Practice of Paracelsus. Um, so the Paracelsus Network with Dr. Thomas Rao. I also completed training with uh, Peter Diadamo um, with his um, course that he was hosting back then, kind of um, in regards to nutrigenetics and nutrigenomics. And so that was, that was really exciting. So, you know, it's always been something that I've been really interested in. Uh, my first functional medicine course was like in 2005 with, uh, the apex group and Detise Karazian, who's another blockbuster in the space. So it's really a labor of love, which kind of has directed me towards, you know, the field that I'm in now, you know, with uh, functional medicine, anti-aging, regenerative medicine and teaching at the university. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, um, just with that background, you've really gone through the greatest hits of all the different functional gurus and, you know, integrative practitioners. You're really uh, someone that's really gotten into the world of omics. And that's kind of our topic today is um, kind of how you bring genetic studies and, you know, lab results and precision medicine into your practice, kind of how you think about that. Um, I think for listeners, just to start broadly, for those who may not be as familiar with it, what is omics? If you could just define that and, and why is that so important for, for human health? You know, it's, it's really interesting because when you really start, you know, looking at the translational science process, meaning connecting those molecular dots, from genome to pathophenome or from DNA to disease and dysfunction, right? We're able to, you know, build upon this architecture that gives rise to the human construct and our, our ability to kind of understand and navigate what's going on on that molecular level. And, you know, again, being, you know, a molecular microbiologist by training, you know, I always wanted to implement and infuse these different resources into clinical practice. And, you know, from the time that I graduated high school to the time where we're at now, there's been some tremendous advancements uh, with the completion of the human human genome project and um, and all sorts of other research in the field of precision medicine. 
And, you know, so omics broadly refers to looking at those different respected subsciences. For example, genomics, looking at DNA, transcriptomics, looking at RNA, proteomics, looking at the proteins, metabolomics, looking at metabolism right? Microbiomics, uh, looking at how the microbes um, externally and internally are affecting us. And also even looking at the envirobiome, which is the external environment and how that influences and shapes our, you know, uh, health expression. So it's, it's very interesting. So each one kind of connects that molecular dot. And, you know, and, and somehow I stumbled into the position of being the course director for the omics of medicine class at George Washington University, where I teach other, you know, fellows undergoing the fellowship and, and the master's degree, um, this kind of ad, advanced translational science process. And to me, you know, it's just one of those things that's just very fascinating to, to look at because, you know, we all have our unique book of life, which was kind of genetically inherited 50% co-authored by your biological mother, and then 50% by your biological father. And that combination of inheritance patterns coupled with, you know, um, just our, our life experience gives rise to kind of who we are, what we are, our disease disposition and our resiliency. So I really think that, you know, looking at, you know, individuals through that lens, um, using omics and systems biology is one of the most precise ways of navigating individualized medicine and care. Um, and then also, you know, a big part of that is looking at the epigenome and how that environment influences, you know, gene expression, right? Because we know that, you know, we're receiving all these different signals and inputs from the periphery that's influencing our gene expression. And we have the ability to turn up different favorable genes, and we have the ability to turn down, um, you know, unfavorable genes based on various signals and inputs that we're feeding our, our, our cells, you know, whether it's actual food or environmental pathogens. Um, you know, it's, it's quite fascinating to see that on a, on a precision level. So a couple of interesting uh, thoughts that I had when you were talking is that it, it sounds like precision medicine will be kind of better suited towards someone really deeply understanding their, their physiology and how they can express or not express various genes in terms of epigenetics, almost like precision begets better prevention. Is that, is that a sort of an accurate statement there? I would definitely say yes. You know, if you had access to your owner's manual and we were able to kind of figure out, Hey, why, you know, when I eat these certain types of foods, I just feel lethargic and sluggish. I might bloat a little bit, might experience aches and pains or, Hey, why is there this kind of prevalency amongst, you know, different generations of this specific disease or dysfunction, you know, that understanding and leveraging that information for empowerment, I think is one of our greatest opportunities, but not to overstate it, you know, because again, you know, I I really feel as though that, you know, the promise of genetics, um, you know, what it was touted to be um, clinically, you know, 10, 15 years ago, doesn't carry the same magnitude because of that epigenetic factor, that concept of genetic determinism, where if you have this 
gene, it's a doomsday diagnosis or whatever it is, is no longer the prevailing kind of consensus is as we better understand, you know, the difference between genetics, genomics and epigenetics. And again, the difference, you know, for the audience here, I think would be important to define, whereas genetics is kind of looking at things through the traditional uh, lens of Mendelian genetics and inheritance patterns, looking at those inborn errors of metabolism, your PKUs and cystic fibrosis, and, you know, those kind of obscure issues, whereas genomics is referring to the, the entire book where we're looking at all the different variations in genes, what's also known as single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs, and how that influences our clinical expression and how we could leverage that information um, for, for multiple clinical applications. Additionally, I think that um, we're getting away from looking at SNPs now over the past couple of years, and we're looking okay. at what's called polygenetic risk scores, where mm -hmm. we're aggregating clusters of genes and how that influences various molecular networks and pathways. And leveraging that information, I think, has a tremendous um, you know, potential at, uh, for, for overall health optimization. So really, as the science advances and some of this gets into clinical practice, it seems like the kind of going back to functional medicine lens, uh, it's a bit more like we can't totally discount the complexity. Like we first tried to use the human genome project to say, oh, we're going to figure out all these you know, genes and just decode everything just from that. But it wasn't that simple. So then we went to SNPs and now we're going to the polygenetic risk factors, right? So it, it's almost like the more we delve into it, the more that it's all connected still. Uh, it, exactly. And then one of the things that I love to use in clinical practice is actually transcriptomics. So again, going back to the central dogma of biology, which is DNA into RNA and RNA into protein, right? Um, I actually, you know, um, use transcriptomic data in the my clinical practice regularly, especially dealing with chronic complex illness, um, you know, to kind of unpack kind of the, the core factors that could be influencing somebody's gene expression. You know, we're not necessarily looking at what DNA you have using transcriptomics, but we're more so looking at the behavior of very specific gene patterns, right? So, and it's it's very interesting to, to look at. And my mentor, Dr. Andrew Heyman, likes to give the analogy, if we're looking at the transcriptome, we're essentially looking at these various genes, right? If we were to look at if genes as maybe the instruments of your own personal symphony orchestra, we're measuring various, you know, um, sections of that orchestra, the strings and the brass and so forth. And maybe we're going to the flute and we're assessing is a flute appropriately tuned appropriately or the piano is that piano um, like essentially tuned appropriately. And what's the harmony coming off of that piano? Is it upregulated? Is it downregulated in sound and structure? And that's kind of a, a, I think a really important opportunity clinically is, uh, you know, looking at that transcriptome and how to apply it clinically. And, and let's talk about, that's great. Let's talk about how we apply that clinically. So a patient walks into your clinic maybe they have chronic fatigue, maybe they have mold exposure or whatnot. How are you bringing, you know, omics and personalized preventative healthcare modalities, you know, genomic medicine, all the different advanced biomarkers, 
that you talk about um, into your practice? Well, you know, so um, generally it's, it's very interesting. So it depends on who's walking through the door and what their goals are, what their symptoms are. Generally yeah. speaking with the Institute for Human Optimization, I'm, I'm dealing with um, a subset of the population that's um, maybe a little bit more aware of, you know, some of the biohacking space and health optimization world. But I also work, um, you know, with Dr. Andrew Heyman and his practice as well, um, you know, a, a mentor of mine. And also we work together in teach together at George Washington University, where, you know, we're advancing the science, uh, the translational science of chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Mm -hmm. Now with SIRS medicine, you know, this, which uh, you have kind of inferred with the the mold exposure, you know, there's, there's kind of this algorithm and protocol for which you, you navigate, you know, these different cases, but essentially we we look to look to see if individuals of the population have a very specific HLA haplotype, you know, and, and based on that genetic predisposition of of your HLAs. Um, and, you know, that could determine whether or not you're part of that kind of 25% of the population that carries with it that haplotype that kind of predisposes them towards, you know, this in, these environmentally acquired sensitivities and, and potential illnesses. And then once we kind of identify that, and there's, you know, um, a series of other additional tests that we use, like a VCS test, and, um, you know, which is a visual contrast sensitivity test to screen for um, neuroinflammation, we then look to the system clusters. And if you have eight out of 13 symptoms, you know, there's a high association that, you know, 98% certainty that this could be SIRS or chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And then, you know, we, we, we test the environment with envirobiomics. We look at the proteomics in regards to, you know, the various biomarkers like TGF-beta-1, MMP9, C3A, C4A, VEGF, um, you know, and a whole host of others, low MSH, low, um, um, a few others. And, and, that's a proteomic signature. And then we also use um, the transcriptomics to look at the molecular signature of kind of what's going on um, underneath the hood. So we kind of connect those molecular dots in that sense um, to further identify what's going on. And you brought up chronic fatigue, myalgic encephalitis is a very common kind of issue. And one of the things that we see on a transcriptomic level with these individuals um, and it's not always SIRS. It could also be associated with, you know, histamine dysregulation and things of that nature, but um, is something called um, molecular hypometabolism. And that hmm. molecular hypometabolism is um, essentially in referring to how the mitochondria are triaging energy, right? And it ties back into what's known in the literature as cell danger response. And we, we've all heard of cell danger. Most of us have heard of cell danger response, you know, in regards to cells, you know, um, kind of sense danger and they respond and they respond by shifting and and reallocating its resources and energy production um, towards like a defensive posturing due to that threat, that environmental threat. So we see, you know, these signs of molecular hypometabolism on a mitochondrial level. And um, we see other signs of, um, you know, kind of how the the body kind of reallocates its energy and, and triaging of energy and resources due to those environmental signals and threats. This, this is a transcriptomics test or uh, for the, the molecular signals for hypometabolism or yes. What, what, what labs are these? Are these blood tests or what kind of labs? 
It's it's a blood test. It's called ProGene DX. Um, okay. From, okay. Uh, they're a lab out of uh, Massachusetts, um, and uh, with Jimmy Ryan, Doctor Shoemaker, and, and and Andrew Heyman are kind of um, you know the major researchers and clinicians behind. So, so these would be people with chronic fatigue or mold or different chronic illnesses. You wouldn't necessarily order a transcript transcriptomics, I should say. On, on a, a healthy patient walking walking in they looking to better their CrossFit game or something, right? Not on that type of person. Yeah, you know, okay. I actually, you know, it's interesting because when you look at, you know, especially aging uh, as a, yeah. a biological process, yeah. um, I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with the cell biology publication in uh, 2013 with Lopez et al on, you know, the hallmarks of aging. Yeah. You might've seen that it's been a kind of updated yeah. Uh, a few months ago in January of 2023 yeah. and essentially adding on three new hallmarks of aging, which include, you know, the dysregulated, uh, uh, or dysregulated macro autophagy, chronic inflammation and dysbiosis or microbiome imbalance issues. And that kind of ties into this big issue that we see with biological aging as a whole, right? Is that we have this chronic inflammation process that's taking place. Now, everybody's inflammation is different, right? And what's perpetuating that. And I think, you know, the, the transcriptomics could be a benefit um, to, to certain individuals. I reserve that test for kind of like the, the mystery illnesses with all sorts of like kind of uncertainties of what's going on on that molecular level. Um, and not necessarily my, my jujitsu buddies that are coming in for, you know, other health optimization issues, you know, peptides, hormones, and regenerative modalities. So again, mm -hmm. I, I try to be mindful with what I pull the trigger on with individuals, but everybody try, I try to get at least everybody to get genotype to my practice. Additionally, I liked, you know, the biological age testing as well to kind of, you know, really put into perspective from an aging, you know, um, you know, kind of baseline, how we're aging, that pace of aging is really important. Mm -hmm. Are you using the DNA methylation, true age and different things or what yeah. are you using there? Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I like true age, you know, I'm, yeah. um, you know, I actually, for my birthday, uh, a, a year ago, I went and toured the facility and everything else before I went and enjoyed the bourbon trail out in Kentucky. <laughs> um, That's nice. You know, they have a wonderful lab and honestly, their bioinformatics is top notch. Um, I know there's some criticisms right now um, in the space, whether or not, you know, these clock genes are accurate representations of, you know, um, of aging. You know, some would say it's kind of misleading to the consumer to say, hey, we're going to reverse Versus your biological age. But I think, you know, it's a great opportunity if we have the resources to kind of peek under the hood to see, you know, what that epigenetic expression's looking like, you know, what, you know, what is our aging process looking like and yeah. the pace of aging and it, we could do things to kind of identify that. And if you've run that panel, you know, it's quite wonderful. It's, you know, you got your intrinsic and extra and intrinsic and extrinsic age. Additionally, you have your Dudane uh, pace of aging, which is, you know, a major study, um, uh, you know, as well that, that really identifies that. Now they've added on telomeres, right. And yeah. stem cell activity. I'll so, have to recheck it. I, I did check mine a couple of years ago, but I haven't done the updated test. So, uh, I I'm really excited about the, the new additions they have to that test.
It's phenomenal. You know, I, yeah. I, I really like that. And that's kind of where I like to start, you know, from a health optimization standpoint, what's your biological age baseline? And do we have the ability to augment, you know, that longevity trajectory, which kind of ties into my book that I'm finishing up the final edits in, you know, the longevity equation, you know, so within the longevity equation, you know, we kind of lay out all these different factors. We unpack the hallmarks of aging. And then also, you know, I'm willing to share with your audience here now, um, you know, I, I've trademarked this concept of the biological 401k. And the biological 401k is essentially our internal biological health savings account, right? And essentially, we, we have the savings account, and we're making meaningful deposits and withdrawals in different forms of bioenergetic currency to this account. And meaningful bioenergetic epigenetic currency would include sleep, nutrition, diet, exercise, meaning and purpose, relationships, you know, optimize environment, stress reduction, decreasing that allostatic load, all the fun things that we talk about in the field of integrative and functional medicine. But it also, you know, looks at those are, you know, the, the deposits and, and withdrawals. So we know that, hey, man, you know, I've got a newborn, my sleep's gone to crap. My aura <laughs> ring is yelling at me. Hey, you know, <laughs> yeah. You know, I used yeah. to be optimal, optimal. Now it's like good, you know, warning signs, you know, they, they don't have that baby curve. They don't curve it up for the baby, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's no con, you know, factor to, to, you know, shift that, <laughs> yeah. you know, and adjust for that, that variable. But, um, you know, essentially it, it's, it's just one of those things where we're looking at these different kind of biological deposits and withdrawals from our biological 401k. And ultimately what we have is this savings account that is essentially going to, you know, the ROI on the savings account is going to be essentially cultivating resiliency and, um, you know, increasing your health span over your lifespan and compressing that time of disease and dysfunction and hopefully growing old into our welderly as Dr. Eric Topol. Oh, mentioned. I like that. I love that. Uh, welderly. Yeah. Well, just to request on a sneak peek, and I would be in first in line for your book. So hopefully I can get in line today um, for your book. It sounds amazing, Anil. Um, I'm just curious about physiologically how those four wing get for one gate deposits happen? Is it is it kind of um, healthier DNA methylation? Is it kind of loss of zombie cells? You know, what, what what's kind of going on under the hood? I guess that's something you're looking at your book. And I had to bring in zombie cells. I, I knew I wanted to talk about that today. Oh, so I love thanks it. for bringing that up. You know, so I yeah. think, um, you know, looking under the hood, there's so many different ways to assess your your resiliency, because at, at the big picture with this is, is looking at, you know, loss of resiliency and adaptive capacity being kind of the benchmark of growing old. You know, some people are more, more focused on their aesthetics or, you know, their, their you know, their performance and, and so forth. But ultimately, once we lose those adaptive capacities, right, that's truly the benchmark of disease and dysfunction, right? Yeah. Because if you were to ask, well, what is health? You know, is health merely the absence of disease? I don't think so. I think health is actually a homeodynamic process that's constantly in flux, right? It's not static, it's dynamic. And we're going to be putting in various signals and inputs that influences various allostatic loads that's going to basically uh, translate into, um, you know, 
how our body kind of balances out. But health isn't, you know, merely an absence of disease. It's the adaptive capacity to have resiliency, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's there's articles um, and publications around resiliency and aging that we could unpack a little bit further. But to answer more specifically, yes, nutrition in regards to epinutrients, as Kara Fitzgerald has mentioned in her book, you yeah. know, looking at these different foods as providing information, um, communicating with So week four of the class that I teach, and I have some wonderful faculty, oh my gosh, that I'm so blessed to be a part of at George Washington University. Um, you know, week four is the the nutrigenetic lecture that we have. And, you know, we, we mentioned that, hey, food is information, communicating with your DNA and enhancing gene or influencing gene expression. So that's one of our greatest opportunities with the foods that we're eating to change the way our cells are functioning. You know, these phytonutrients bind to G protein, couple of receptors, influence second mes secondary messengers within the cell, cyclic AMP and, you know, IP3 and all these other kind of, you know, pathways and turn on the molecular signature signals to enhance those favorable gene expressions. So yes, epinutrients, nutrients, diet's a big part of it, sleep's a big part of it, you know, um, you know, joy and happiness, heart rate variability, all of those different factors are, you know, within our locus of potential control to enhance our, and, and you know, our, our gene expression. But additionally, just to tie back into what you mentioned, a favorite topic of mine is the zombie cells, also known as cellular senescence in the literature. And one of the, you know, key 12 hallmarks of aging, you know, it kind of is like this gatekeeper that gets into the terminal hallmarks, you know, and, and for the audience, essentially, you know, senescent cells or zombie cells are uh, refers to um, cells that kind of bioaccumulate damage with time, right? They also might hit what is known as a Hayflick limit, which was originally discovered at, you know, with Dr. Hayflick and Moorhead in 19, I think 51 or 61 um, with their research with fibroblasts. And essentially, you know, what they found was that these fibroblastic cells underwent X amount of mitotic divisions or their ability to divide. And they hit, you know, the, the number around 50. What they found is, oh man, after 50 or so cellular divisions, the cell stopped dividing. Okay. And it lost a lot of function, right? It wasn't dead. It wasn't alive. And it was actually metabolically active. And fast forward to what our understanding of cellular senescence now, right? We know that, you know, it's basically arrested in uh, the G1 interphase of, of cell, um, the cell cycle, rendering it metabolically active and producing what's called these SAS uh, factors, the senescent associated secretory phenotype. And these SAS proteins actually accelerate the biological aging process. It's almost like poisoning the well. And there's some research that shows yeah. that one cell out of, you know, five to 15,000 could accelerate the additional formation of senescent cells in our system. But what happens when these senescent cells outpace the immunological clearance? This is where we start seeing that accumulation of those cells being associated with age-related changes in the brain. It's now being associated with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and there's clinical studies going on with that. There's been some really great human clinical trials in regards to kidney fibrosis and idiopathic 
idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, mm, yeah. you know, interventions to remove those cells using wow. various drug therapies and modalities such as disatinib, quercetin, right? And there's a whole host of different studies that's going on right now at Mayo Clinic with uh, Dr. Kirkland and his lab that's looking at, you know, these interventions to remove senescent cells and um, to see how that influences disease progression. But in my opinion, removing these zombie cells is great, but it's not addressing the latter hallmarks, right? Which is altered cellular, uh, altered cellular communication, right? And um, stem cell exhaustion. And mm -hmm. um, I believe that the term, another terminal hallmark is, you know, the dysbiosis and chronic inflammation. So, you know, if you're looking at it from, um, you know, the aging perspective and, and the mechanisms behind it, just because you remove these senescent cells does not mean you're going to rejuvenate the stem cells, right? And, you know, it's stem cell rejuvenation, as you may have seen in the literature, you know, in regards to Yamanaka factors and, you know, those different genes that regulate this, um, stem cell rejuvenation is another key opportunity at kind of enhancing, you know, the biological age reversal. So that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. Then we'll have to have you back and talk more about your book when it comes out. I'm so excited for that. Like I said, I'm first in line for that book. If, if you have a, a waiting line for that, <laughs> I, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, what I learned from Kara when she was on number one, the most important thing is that her mother made her a rosemary salt shaker. That's one of those like uh, epigenetic hacks that she like sprinkles on her food. But I think, you know, aging is one of those things that if we can age healthily, then we really are mitigating or even preventing potentially a lot of disease down the road because we're really affecting the whole system, the whole biology there. So I, I think this is a really, really important topic and I'm kind of wanted to tie it back into omics again. So um, I was wondering if you use in your practice uh, SNP testing, you said it's kind of more getting into other things like polygenetic risk factors and um, transcriptomics, et cetera. But are you still using SNPs at all? And if so, how relevant is that? Of course, you know, I, I think yeah. it's important to still keep SNPs on hand, you know, yeah. and be able to go back to that kind of blueprint to navigate, you know, wh why, why is this person's GGT levels, gamma glutamyl transferase so high, you know, why do they do so well on glutathione? Well, maybe they have those, you know, polymorphisms and glutathione recycling, you know, what's their cytochrome P450 is looking at. And I also think one of our greatest clinical applications is looking at this through the lens of pharmacogenomics. Pharmacogenomics is critical, right? Um, for the future of personalized yeah. medicine, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. dialing in who's going to respond more favorably to what interventions, because as we know, there is an ethnic kind of association here where, you know, certain people respond to certain interventions differently. Okay. Right. And this is, you know, we could, you know, we could look at the, what I think is a, a great study that's coming out now is a MESA study, the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, you know, which is a modern day Framingham, you know, study. Yeah. And, you know, as this study kind of starts unpacking all these different ethnic diversities, we're now finding that certain certain um, races respond to certain interventions differently and more favorably than others. And, you know, the same ASCVD risk score that we use for everybody is not going to be the same tool to further risk stratify individuals for these cardiometabolic and um, heart disease issues. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you, what you're saying is we should go towards personalized medicine and 
kind of uh, keep continue to move away from from cookie cutter medicine because cookie cutter doesn't really give you the results that you want. It sounds like. You know, uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I want to say that one size does not fit all, most definitely, because we're totally different. I'm bald, brown, and bearded. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and 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 you're you're Asian, and you know, I'm Southeast Asian, and you know, we have just so much diversity here, and there's so many different factors that influence that, and I think where we need to evolve in, evolve to. Uh, within the literature is looking at how we could start doing N of one clinical trials where every single individual is at the center of their own unique clinical trial, where we try to look at things, you know, most of the, the clinical models of study right now has been kind of geared towards this biopharmaceutical model, you know, post Framingham report for the standardization of medicine. And essentially what we're doing is we're taking this large clinical, you know, trial of thousands of people and we're saying, hey, take this drug or you get placebo. We're going to yeah, randomize yeah. it, right? And then all of a sudden we get data. And then that data, as we saw during COVID research, could be very shifty and easily manipulated to enhance or discredit whatever the hell you want to look at, Right. I think, you know, it's important to have those large clinical studies, but the, uh, you know, the research and the science of the masses needs to be further stratified to the individual, right? Because my genetic blueprint is going to be totally different for and receptive to a drug intervention versus somebody else's based on my, you know, cytochrome yeah. P50s or other molecular targets comparatively. Yeah, that, that's great answer. And I, I do have a funny uh, thought about, about that. Although we look different, we're brothers from another mother, right? That's kind of the thing. <laughs> I, I think I can, I can probably, you know, it's likely that we both, you know, like a lot of the same things, but, you know, um, I guess phenotypically, but um, I'm curious about, this is a public health question really, but let's say, you know, we have, you know, millions of people in the United States, billions of people around the world, Who's going to access this type of care? How do you how do you stratify like where to start with the fundamental lifestyle factors? You know who needs omics testing? Who needs functional medicine testing? Where where do you kind of where would you see you know kind of the whole access point for some of this type of more advanced personalized medicine? Well, you know, it's interesting. That's a great question. And from a public health initiative, how do we increase access to care? And that was one of the main topics that um, you know, Mayo Clinic recently just had um, their, their individualized medicine conference back in November of last year, and they have it every year. Um, and I mean, they're really pushing this narrative forward with precision medicine and, and looking at how to overcome these different obstacles. And, you know, one of the biggest, uh, you know, factors here is how do you overcome, you know, number one, increase access, but also uh, overcome some of the hesitancy that the general public would have if there's um, some sort of commercialization of genetic testing. You know, mm -hmm. do we have to be mm -hmm. fearful of genetic discrimination, even though mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. the GINA Act, the Genetic Information mm -hmm. Non-Discrimination Act, um, yeah. or, you know, do we have to be concerned about, um, you know, how this is going to influence care for the individual as a mm -hmm. whole? 
Right. So there's a lot of different factors there that, you know, I think from a public health health initiative we're, we're grappling with. But one of the, the things that I think is more kind of um, creeping up into the realm of insurance based models and in our kind of healthcare system here in the U.S. is that they're actually, you know, allowing um, in certain populations uh, coverage for genomic testing for pharmacogenomic applications, right? So we're, we're seeing that kind of infused into different healthcare models, right? more yeah. on the West Coast than the East Coast comparatively. Okay. We're also seeing reimbursement for pharmacogenomic testing in various subsets of the population. And we're seeing that infusion within the EMR system, within the centralized database in the healthcare system. So I'm really excited to see uh, a gradual adaptation to, you know, some of these principles in various clinical settings to various capacities. So it's, it's coming right yeah. now. How do you kind of, determine who needs what based on what i mean it's it's really individualized you know i i I like to deal with like the biohackers and the people that are really curious about you know understanding their book of life and their their you know what's going on in their health conundrum and um, putting those pieces together and connecting those molecular dots and from a functional medicine perspective you know we're always looking you know at the root cause of what could be leading to this disease and function you know looking at atms our antecedents triggers and mediators you know, so it really depends on the situation. Is it simply, mm-hmm. hey, you need to cut out the gluten because of whatever issues you're having? Or is it, hey, your thyroid is there, there's undiagnosed Hashimoto's, and that's tied into the gluten? Is it an endocrine dysregulation? You know, and another big thing is looking at environmental component. The environmental mm-hmm. component is so critical. And I'm sure you've done so much testing with, you know, these different environmental toxicants, and we see the same damn culprits yeah. every freaking time yeah. you plastics pesticides and you know other alpha toxins and heavy metals yeah right yeah. that's a real big thing you know that you need yeah. to address and remove that ongoing exposure do an environmental audit and clean up the environment and you know do other interventions to help promote biotransformation and elimination yeah, a lot of my patients, a lot of our patients ask like, well, why are my heavy metals so high? Or why are my plastic levels so high? Is it because you're a human on the earth? You know, yeah. the earth is polluted and we got to find a way to clean that up. But, um, you know, I think this is a very common finding, really. Andy, why clean it up when we could invent the bubble, my friend? We need to build a bubble, right? <laughs> Let's do that. We can do that. As long as there's tacos there, we got to have a taco stand there. Definitely eat tacos without a doubt. <laughs> I, I love some uh, buffalo cauliflower tacos. Or- Amazing. <laughs> so I guess my other question for that, Anil, is um, so so someone's kind of coming into your clinic. I'd love to give the listeners, if you don't mind, like a, a taste of kind of how you practice medicine and how you would use genomics in a case. If you have like a brief little case vignette of of someone that you felt was, you know, helped with this type of precision medicine, I think it would really illustrate, you know, how, how we might use this in in practice. Sure. I'm trying to think of a great case. There's so many, too many to other, you know, it's like, where do we begin? I mean, there's obviously the traditional SIRS case where it's like, all right, 
you're genetically predisposed, transcriptomically demonstrating activity of, you know, upregulation in the genes associated with SIRS, and then you have the envirobiomics connection and the proteomic connection. That's that's kind of a slam dunk in regards to that that chronic inflammatory response syndrome. But you know, for the other 75% of the population, how could they leverage this information for yeah. further, you know, enhancement? I think you know, a couple of opportunities here. I think number one, you know, one of the things that I see mostly is looking at diet, right? How do we leverage this information for diet? What, what, what's the appropriate macronutrients that I should be using? Number one, based on genetics. Number two, based on um, your your actual metabolism and VO2 max, that's going to hmm. shift your ratios on, you know, protein, fat, carb, and, you know, and, and set up some of the nutrigenetic kind of associations. And, you know, I could tell you stories about you know, people having, um, you know, I have a, um, a young lady, um, who is a nurse practitioner who has been suffering with all sorts of issues, neuropsychiatric, um, cognitive issues, um, skin issues her entire life. And sure enough, when you start peeling back some of the genetics, we're, we're finding that she has some, um, defects, in her collagen synthesis that's leading to some truncated proteins and dysregulated keratin production and leading to, you know, these eczematous kind of, you know, skin formations and things of that nature. And then, you know, it's also tied into some of the truncated proteins on the adaptive side of the immune response. And, you know, that's leading to her, why am I only sick? question, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> well, this yeah. is why, you know, we're lacking this um, part of the sophisticated part of the immune system to achieve a normal ad adaptive kind of regulatory um, kind of process to, to deal with these different threats, whatever it is. Um, and then, you know, what do you do with this information in regards to, well, if you start seeing that from the genetic level and then the proteomic level, that there is a clinical manifestation of that. Well, you, you treat the you treat that issue, whether that's looking at a, a chronic neutropenia with a low CD fifty seven count and looking into transfer factors, um, or if it's looking at you know elevations in GGT with defects associated with um, glutathione recycling. It's a uh, macrocytosis and MTHFR and homocysteine. We all know that one, you know. So there's um, you know looking at some of the detox pathways as we start unpacking at hormonal metabolites. There's so many different clinical applications, you know, um, that, that you could use to kind of refine and enhance, um, the clinical process. I hope that answered your question. It, it, it does. It does. Um, I think it, it just kind of teaches us that there's just so many rich and varied applications of this kind of science and really, the whole point of, you know, medicine, uh, and, and, and my opinion is really just to, um, you know, better our, our lives, you know, so that we can be of service, um, for others and for hopefully the world, you know, I think that, you know, everyone wants to live their best life. And this is a real way to a pathway, you know, forward to, to help people a system and kind of becoming the CEO of their own health with, with more data, right. Instead of a blindfold on. So I, I like that, uh, so much. And, um, I think we often close with, and I thank you, Anil, for coming on today. We definitely have to do many more podcasts to talk about some of the rabbit holes that we need to kind of dive into more. Uh, definitely want to talk more about various um, kind of biohacking or resilience topics um, would be amazing. 
um, just in gen general terms, it's like take home uh, points. Um, what What is like the one thing or maybe one or two things you wish kind of everyone knew about kind of omics and the genetics, genomics, omics, et cetera, space that that would benefit them? You know, I think that, you know, we the, the biggest message is we're all unique. We all have, you know, all sorts of um, different life experiences. And I also do believe um, that there is a transgenerational epigenetic programming. So, yeah. you know, I think that's been kind of clinically proven and Mayo Clinic, um, you know, has really highlighted some of the research studies around the three generation, three to seven generation hypothesis that, you know, this goes back, you know, before us. It, it's beyond us. And um, that just because, you know, you're going to your doctor and they're just saying, hey, your blood work looks normal and you don't feel right. And, you know, you're not getting the right answers. There is hope. Right. And, you know, to me, again, being a molecular biologist, I like to start off with, you know, deconstructing things. And some people don't like that. You know, some people are more like really, um, you know, bioenergetic and they want to, you know, feel things a little bit more and, and do less sciencey things and more like bioenergetic things. And I totally respect that. Everybody's different. My mind is just programmed towards that as, again, a molecular biologist to connect those molecular dots. And I think, you know, leveraging this information for empowerment is going to be critical. As Dr. Jeffrey Bland says, you know, this information should not be, um, you know, for, you know, to be, should not be used to kind of strike fear into people, but to be used for a better understanding and empowerment. So that's, that's kind of like the big take-home message. Absolutely. Beautiful. Um, do you have any, uh, thank you. Do you have any resources for anyone who might want to learn more about um, omics? And, and certainly we want to also uh, have our listeners, you know, have some resources uh, to where to learn more, you know, where, um, where to go to learn more about you and work with you, et cetera. Yeah. So I am, I have my private practice with the Institute for Human Optimization, ifho.org. And um, I have, you know, information there as well. And, you know, I'm going to be releasing more content, especially with the book. Once it's kind of delivered, I'm going to be starting the longevity equation podcast and I'm building out this biological 401k kind of an immersive program um, as we speak. So I'm, I'm working on a, a lot of projects here um, so that awesome. we could kind of like educate ourselves for empowerment. You know, that's the goal. Yeah. Becoming yeah. the CEO of your own health is actually the tagline of uh, the nice. biological 401k. So I love that you said that. And um, yeah, yeah. so essentially that's what we're going to do. You know, if they want to learn more about omics, they could either, you know, um, the NIH has a lot of great resources, um, the National Institutes of Health. Additionally, they could take the class um, at George Washington University that kind of is a teaser of what we're doing here in, in clinical practice. Um, so, you know, there's, there's so many different ways to to do that. But, you know, I encourage anybody that wants to kind of go through the process to schedule a discovery call on my website, ifho.org. And, um, you know, because I, I'm kind of, you know, selective with who I work with in regards to certain things, you know, I just want to make sure it's a good fit for, for both of us, you know, and I could best serve people to my fullest capacity. 
Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then, and then finally, uh, just another question about kind of access and and just kind of for the listener. Um, part of our mission at, at CIH, as you know, is making integrative healthcare more accessible and focusing on the small steps that we can take to improve our health. So we'd love to hear from you, Anil. What is one thing under $20 that you feel has transformed your health? Um, before you answer, I will say that uh, some of our previous guests during this time of inflation have said, oh, $20 is too cheap. We needed to be $100. So I'm kind of giving people a little bit of a choice there, but let's try to start with under $20 if we, if we can and we can go from there. You know, I got to be honest, and I tell this uh, to all my friends, family, and patients, I have not taken an antibiotic in, I don't know, over 20-something years, maybe 30 Amazing. years since I was a kid. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know how or why I've been so lucky and blessed. Maybe it's because I got into supplementation and everything else, you know, at a young age, and I've always been supplementing. Um, but I, um, have been sleeping next to my bed on the nightstand with colloidal silver since a teenager. And I really, I know there's mixed opinions about colloidal silver, this, that, and the other, but I'll tell you what, anytime I notice a sniffle, a tickle or a scratch, mm -hmm. an itch, yeah, yeah. I, I just, I, I just start it, you know, and for me, it's, it's worked very nicely. Um, you know, so I usually use that as like a kind of superficial topical kind of, uh, antimicrobial agent, whatever it might be. And then I move into other immune modulating supplements, um, you know, depending on the, the presentation to to address whatever issue to get ahead of it because You're about a spray or liquid something like that uh, yeah the know? sublingual the throat sublingual. spray the nasal spray yep. you know okay. argentin you argentin, know is a great yeah. one um okay. but so is um you know um the consumer version of it that's available at whole foods which is sovereign silver um, oh, okay yeah so, yeah so you know for me I, that's what's you know helped me over the years, you know, um, greater than 23 years now since I've been taking it and I love it. And I have not really been ill because I, that's next to the nightstand. And even if I feel a little worn down and I feel as though, oh no, you know, just, just too much and too much exposure, I just do a little dose, you know, there's a maintenance dose that you theoretically could take on the regular. And then there's a, you know, uh, acute dosing that you could do if battling an illness. And, um, I don't do the maintenance. I just take it every now and then. And, um, and then if I need to load up, I load up, you know, and, and right. And then without taking antibiotics, right. That's actually protecting, Neil's microbiome for the last 20 years by not having to take antibiotics. That's nice. That, that has always been at the forefront of the, the rationalization is that I'm trying to preserve my amazing bowel health. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's the thing we, we can kind of touch on here at the end is that, you know, it's about genomics and, and epigenetics, but of course the microbiome is, as a big part, a huge part of our, our kind of, a even, you know, genetic material on how that gets expressed. Oh yeah. And as part of my testing is, is looking at everybody's microbiome, you know, yeah, because that's, yeah. you know, that's where, you know, uh, Hippocrates said that all disease begins in the gut, 
you know, yeah. and I think yeah. even uh, Sir William Osler, one of the, the four horsemen of Johns Hopkins echoed that as well with his quotes. And um, essentially, I really think that it's one of our greatest opportunities. And, and you know, with the recent, um, you know, kind of evolution of the human microbiome project, it's one of our greatest potentials of harnessing the power of this. And um, so I guard my microbiome at all costs. You know, obviously the, the gambles that I take are sketchy taco spots when traveling you know? <laughs> but with, with some bourbon part, with some bourbon yeah <laughs> with the bourbon um yeah i'm actually um you know i don't i don't have bourbon all the time but i i believe that um bourbon is america's first one of america's first medicines especially as exhibited um during the time of prohibition and i have a nice. pretty expansive bourbon collection um okay okay it's nice. uh if you saw it, you would think I would have a problem. I, I have like <laughs> apothecary at my house here of, um, you know, kind of medical knickknacks. And, you know, I have a, this prescription for medis medicinal bourbon um, okay. from the time of prohibition. That's you know, interesting. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. That's but, funny. You know, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. So well, thank you so much, Anil, for coming on today. Um, love to have you back to chat more about biohacking, resilience, uh, there's so many th topics we could talk about. We could also talk about tacos more. I think that's always a, a good topic, but um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I think this is so informative and very hopeful for people. I think just, you know, giving people hope and that, you know, we can take charge of our own, you know, quote unquote genetic destiny or, you know, healthy aging and really trying to live our, our best lives to be of service to, to everyone in the world here. I love it. And thank you so much for everything that you're doing, you know, and being a, a friend and mentor to me over the years, it means a lot. And it's truly an honor and pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thank you. you. Know, you yeah, too. much thank love. You. Yeah, thank you. you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast to reach more listeners. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episodes and conversations. And thank you so much again for being with us.